Welcome to Rally Bites on the 12th of June 2014 and our monthly chat with um, Alan Watts of CuttingThroughTheMetrics.com. Uh, you there, Alan? Yes, I'm here, yep. Uh, loud and clear, great. Um, we like to stick to one topic uh, on these shows these days and uh, the topic this week is uh, royalty. In the, in the UK the last couple of weeks, we've had D-Day and we've had the state opening of Parliament and anybody who watched the state open of parliament and thought uh, we lived in a time of austerity um you know dream on now, i think uh, there was an article appeared in one of the papers about one of the the bolts on the wheel of our, our carriage was worth about um three grand <laughs> yeah. you know, one one bolt because it was gold plated of course uh-huh. um but um it, it makes such a mockery of uh the people standing in the gutter where they belong uh, waving their little flags and uh they just keep doing it. They just keep doing it. But uh, anyway, let's let's start right at the beginning. Is in your um, depth of reading, as it were, is there any point in history we can actually go back to and say, "Oh, this was the first king, this was the first queen, the first emperor," or you know, where did this idea ever originate? It really, we go back to uh, you can find it in Sumer and Babylon, of course. Uh, where they had the, the king you, they called him a king you. He was the top honcho, and uh, he was like a kind of god king. Uh, and later on, of course, he, well, he's also, this is the thing, you always get with the idea of wealth or money combined with rulership, and the rulership always centralizes itself. And in those days, it was a king that uh, was centralized around, and uh, his advisors and the money men. Uh, and the old, in the ancient times, they used to weigh out the gold and the silver, and etc. in powder form. But uh, eventually, they coined money around the, the, about the ninth century BC or so. And um, you find that from then on, it's, it was a, a it was a long-standing process. They always had kings. Uh, democracy, the idea of democracy, didn't arise until centuries and centuries later. Uh, and even in the Middle Ages, no one ever thought about democracy. It was an alien concept, except in, in ancient Greece, where they tried different systems of uh, of rulership. And, uh, of course, Greece had its kings too at one time, and then they went into uh, a kind of a noble rule of, of senators, etc., and Rome copied that. And But they also occasionally had a tyrant king. And uh, a tyrant king, even though it sounds like a tyrant, uh, it simply took over when things weren't working and functioning, and he'd become the king. Uh, so uh, this is an ancient idea of rulership. But it starts really with uh, one family, a big family, that become a kind of clan, and they slaughter those around them and take over their lands, and they rule by fear and terror. And eventually they, 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 they uh, protect the, the people from... Uh, the next big bunch, the next big family of clans. That was the, the ancient idea. Uh, so that carried all down through the ages. And the same thing happened in England, of course. It mainly really took off a big time when, uh, say, William the Conqueror came in, the House of Orange and so on, uh, to, to, to spread this new idea, this new type of kingdom. Eventually, they brought in a, a form of democracy, but it's more like a senate, because uh, with nobility made up the parliament. It wasn't too much later they brought in uh, uh, more, again, merchant classes to become the the congress or the parliamentarians. And it's only about the 20th century that they really brought in uh, other folk to represent different parties from the lower classes. 
So uh, uh, even at that, so Britain was the only country that really hung on big time. Uh, Denmark too, I think, and a couple other ones hung on to to the idea of a, a, mo- a monarchy and, and over the democracy. Uh, so it's a good con of democracy, but it's still a monarchy in a sense. And the monarchy represents a plutocracy that rules the, the nations. Yeah. So it's a very ancient idea. And as I say, the idea of democracy has never come into fruition. Ancient China, apparently, tried all these different techniques. They had plutocracies, they had socialism, they even had communism about two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, they tried all of these ones out, but they always reverted back to a form of local kingdoms and so on for a long time. So it's a, it's a traditional thing that goes along with money boys because the money boys are generally an alien people who come in to the different countries and lend out uh, and keep the king happy with, with lending to the king and they get the right to tax the people. They're called tax farmers. Uh, so they, the, the man, men who lent to the kings and nobility got the right to tax the peasantry. And because they were a different um, race often or, uh, from the peasantry, uh, they had as much in common with the peasantry as the king had with the peasantry. They hated them, in other words. Uh, that happened all down through the Middle Ages across Europe. Uh, tax farming was big up until the early 20th century, in fact. And it wasn't until the governments formed their own taxation revenue then they could actually recoup the money to pay back these moneylenders by using a kind of income tax system uh, run by the government. Yeah. Well, that was that was going to be my next question because I, I was wondering, if, did the king employ the moneylenders or did the moneylender employ the king? It often it, it was it was an odd situation. Sometimes it was one or the other. It could reverse itself, and sometimes the king too would kick them out because um, he would owe so much to them he couldn't pay it back. But also the moneylenders were taking over lands because uh, they were lending also to peasantry at, at compound interest. Uh, Germany was a big, big um, uh, symbol of that whole technique, uh, uh, Poland and so on. And uh, the peasants couldn't pay it back. The moneylenders knew it, so they are taking over the lands. And the nobilities realized these moneylenders become more powerful and, and wealthier than they were, so they kicked them out often, and they went back and forth to different countries doing it. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the, um, in terms of the money, um, it, it makes you wonder if the, the king's perceived as the, the highest uh, lord in the land, as it were, that, why he bothered with the moneylenders? Why didn't he take over that system himself? Well, here's the, here's the odd thing. You can go back to, to uh, Christianity, early Christianity, that really was against um, usury. Uh, the whole idea, in fact, early Christianity was very communistic, not pre-Marxian communistic, a natural communism, because everybody lived in communities in those days, so they were in communes communistic. But uh, the whole idea was to lend, give people what you had extra. Two coats, give them one, etc. Uh, don't, don't collect stuff here on earth, etc. Uh, and that was all changed eventually because the Catholic Church formed out of a power, a political ruling power, an empire. And so they were married to politics from the beginning. And even though they were against usury, they still needed money. And the ones who brought the money into the country, uh, of course, uh, they, they, they allowed them to use, and they were, they were not Christian, they allowed them to, to use usury. Uh, because they wanted the money. They wanted the money to circulate amongst the people, and they themselves would collect it back in, in, uh, in their boxes, collection boxes, and so on. And then that, that would go, end up going, a certain portion would go back to Rome. 
So money's been the key to all this system all along. We live in a, a nature. We live in nature. Nature is not a pleasant Walt Disney thing. Uh, nature is cruel. Everything has to survive. And of course, uh, in this system, everyone's terrified of being at the bottom, dirt poor. Uh, you have, because when you're dirt poor, you're the first to go under. If it's a collapse of any kind or a war or whatever, you can't get out. You have no money to bribe your way out. Those with money always survive. So uh, the money system itself um, literally creates a mentality of, if you like, survival of the richest or fittest. And therefore, uh, those who get the greatest rewards will often survive and go on while the rest die off through poverty, starvation, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, this has been like this for thousands of years, and no one's come up with a better system, supposedly. Yeah. So, in, in a way, the the king or queen or emperor or whoever it is that's at the top is, is actually uh, shielding and uh, disguising the whole function of the money lender. They are the ultimate symbol of the whole system of money lending and taxation to pay back to the money lenders. Today we call them international bankers, but but it's the same thing that's going on. And, now, and again, the difference is so the money lenders don't take the heat, which they used to do, because uh, they had to go out and collect the taxes off the peasantry. That, they were given permission to recoup their loans, but they take it from the peasantry, not from the king. Uh, that now you've got the, they, they have the, the income tax bureaus to do it for them. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I was going to say. They, they use the government now to, to do the dirty work and yeah. uh, collect the taxes. That's right. So the government takes the heat then, you see, yeah. Yeah, and, and we pay the we pay the government to do it. <laughs> no, that's right. So it's like it's a saving all around for them, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you say that this kind of whole system, um, as far as far as we can determine, started back in Sumeria or Babylon, yeah. um, and and how did how did the system um, like immigrate to like America, South America? And, and those kind of places, or was it a separate kind of um, organic thing developed there? No, it was the same thing there. They, they had in Latin America. It's nonsense that they didn't. It, nothing happened until Columbus came along. There's no doubt about. It. There was trade. There was trade uh, even from the Middle East to, to South America thousands of years ago. They found the coins, the ancient coins, uh, Proto-Iranian ones too, in Canada, parts of Canada, and in the in the Latin America and the States. Uh, they found graves with inscriptions on it in Latin and so on. So uh, there were definitely occasional trade coming in and out of these different countries. Um, but it wasn't really until uh, Cortes and the bunch came in, of course, from Spain, uh, that they reintroduced this new system um, of domination by empire expansion for Spain. Uh, that And then, again, to Spain kicked out a lot of its, uh, its money class who moved to Latin America, and many of their descendants still rule parts of it today, in fact. But they brought the money system with them, and uh, it, it's never really changed uh, since to the present time. Very powerful families run uh, the Latin American countries, very, very powerful families, often intermarried, in fact. Uh, in the U.S., of course, the Puritans brought the whole idea over with them, of working hard, supposedly, and, and being very uh, thrifty, meaning scheme, very, a good schemer with, with money and investments and all the rest of it. And the U.S. took off with that because they had less impediments for taxation. They didn't have the, the size of governmental uh, bureaucracies to demand taxes off them. 
and that's why they took off. When you when you take off the restrictions on income taxes and various kind of taxes, uh, and, and they don't have the bureaucracies to put all the impediments to 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 working any kind of business, all the laws and regulations and, and etc., then they can really steamroll ahead very fast and become very powerful quickly. The U.S. did that in its early days. And, and about uh, the end of World War, actually it was late 18, 1880s, I think, they said that the U.S. for the first time overtook Britain uh, for, for, for raw goods and, imp- and exports and things like that. So they took over um, and expanded up uh, well up until about the 1960s. Yeah. So are you saying that, um, well, I spoke to um, two American Indian chiefs um, last week, uh, Native Americans, and uh, they, they talked about the, the cultures that had been there well before Columbus as well, and uh, the yeah. artifacts that have been found and proven to, you know, yeah, uh, good, to Chinese. Good yeah, there's a good there's good books uh, by Professor Barry Fell, F E L L, who uh, uncovered a lot of this stuff. He he was from Harvard, and he and his students would go on these digs and they dug up so much. They even found three the tops of three pyramids in in uh, Algonquin Park, by the way. And the CBC did a, a documentary special, a series of tapes you can get on it. Uh, and they found uh, these priestly quarters of people who, again, uh, wrote in a, a, what they call proto-Iranian language. But there was the tops of three pyramids they uncovered. That, and then those digs were closed down. They didn't want to go any further with them. They, they did, the professor did, but uh, the governments didn't. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been to Mexico and... Uh... There was one. Um, we're getting slightly off topic, but there was there was one pyramid that had just recently been discovered, and you, you were allowed to actually climb on this one. So, on the top I went, and you could see across the jungle, and there were mounds everywhere, as, as far yeah. as you could see. And uh, I spoke to the, the young lad that was um, doing some of the archaeology there, and he said, "Oh yeah, this this the whole place all around here, it, it's all it's all it's, it's like a city, a city the size of London. Right. It's just it's everywhere, but uh, they won't let us dig it up. But um." Yeah, I mean, in terms of the, you, you said that the, the Spanish brought the money system. Presumably before that, it was genuine trade between uh, these these nations that obviously travelled across um, the Atlantic, the Pacific. There, there there was trade, but trade, you know, from the days of the Phoenicians, and they were a big player in, in all of this. The Phoenicians were quite amazing people because uh, they, they traded, but they also put countries into debt. An area, small, small tribes, really the precursor of big countries. They put them all into debt by lending to them. And what they would do, they would take over uh, countries as well because of the debt, and the king would owe them big time. And they would make it a deal that if you go to war with this other group who don't use money, our money, to which we are introducing, because they were bre- the Phoenicians were also standardizing their currency, a silver coin, a particular weight, and so on. And the countries that didn't use their coin, didn't want to trade with them, they'd get a, a country that would already taken over through debt to use their armies as part of the deal for repayment. And they'd go and conquer those countries. And, and, and then the Phoenicians would get a deal where they could enslave the people and have them working like factory towns with free labor for a long time. So it wasn't just a happy free trade with them at all, no. There's much more to it than that. Same system today, isn't it? <laughs> It's the same system, free trade. They, they called it free trade back then, by the way, you know. And, of course, that's why you had the, the wars against the Spartans and so on, 100-year wars, because they wouldn't adopt uh, the, this particular money system run by these people because it always ended up uh, with the uh, complete uh, uh, debt of the nation to these people who, they, who would then move their own advisors in to rule the countries. Yeah. Right, so from... 
uh, the the system spread out, uh, and you mentioned that it started from one family or two families or one tribe. Well, we we can trace it back, as I say, to the days of Sumer, early Sumer, you know, five thousand years ago or so, or longer actually. Yeah. So, so basically, did they did they kind of lay out a map of the world at that time and say, right, uh, similar similar to how the um, the Rockefellers built up their empire by sending one son into the one son into that. Is that is that the kind of system they used? Do you think that's the kind of system they, they would use? And again, tribal leaders, the matter side of of his chiefs of a tribe, saw the wealth of the next tribe, of course, because the guy was getting money lent to him and all these riches brought into him and fine robes and for himself and his wife and all that, and he'd want it too. So generally, they say that power corrupts, and when you get power with money, it always corrupts. It can't help but be the same thing. Uh, so, so envy would would be part of it too on the on the part of of leaders and chiefs, etc. They'd want the same thing, and they'd bring in these guys to do the same thing to them. Yeah. So okay, so they they've set up the system across the world more or less, mm-hmm. uh, apart from countries that haven't conquered. And yeah. So they, they must you know they get together somewhere or they have um, ambassadors or something of the day. And get together and say, right, how how do we secure this kind of system? Yeah, and then is is that where they they started? Um, how can you put it? Um, tying all the the people together through marriage, uh, and that's yes, is that, is that uh, how they... yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what they, they created even in ancient Egypt had the myth of the royal blood and all this. And in Egypt, we know that they even sometimes married their sisters to keep it as close as could be. Uh, and other places were the same way. They would marry their immediate relatives, basically, like the Rothschilds still do today. They, they marry their nieces by tradition, uh, and the five big families. There's different branches of them now. But uh, you find the same thing with all the big families. They keep the money inside the family by intermarrying the family. Royalty was the same, and uh, the old blue blood concept... Uh, and we find, of course, the Habsburgs and all the ones in uh, uh, Saxe Coburg, Gotha. Uh, a lot of these kings and queens that are across Europe today, including Britain, uh, came from the Germanic areas before it was, Germany was a true big country. Uh, small kingdoms, etc. The Saxe and Coburg and Gotha were separate princedoms. And Germany was the first country through debt uh, to actually uh, start electing kings and princes. So the, the ones that you have today through King George came in uh, really were, were, were not traditional uh, lineage ones, although they, they'd later marry ones, earlier ones, pre-existing royalty, even if the royalty was poor, just to get that blood into them to say we're, we are the true heirs of, the, say, the British throne, for instance. Uh, before that, the Normans brought in the system big time. Uh, Normans, the Norman invasion wasn't just a bunch of wild guys running across Europe taking it over. It was the most organised world war, almost a, a, the ancient world, a world war in a sense in its day. And when they came into Britain, for instance, they, they brought uh, prefabricated forts. Uh, they built them in, in the, the French on the French side, and they, they'd, they'd pull them across the ocean in ships. They, they, they'd erect them in the Isle of White Man. As halfway stops for, for all the supplies he brought in. It was done with incredible military precision. And then from there, they'd bring them across to Britain and erect these prefabricated forts, massive things. 
Uh, this wasn't just a bunch of wild guys out on a killing spree for looting and booty. They they literally uh, were running like World War Two or, or something like that, you know. So they brought in that system with them, which was the church behind them, to to cow the people. I always call it the churches the softening up crew. You'll know in warfare the barrage that used to give them from the naval gunships were called. You'd soften up your enemy fortifications by blasting them for about an hour before you sent in the troops. And uh, uh, technically, the, the, the religious aspect of it, that's where they've always backed uh, this, this later brand of Christianity, not the, the early one. And uh, and they would tell the people not to fight, not to kill, etc. That was a softening up crew. They might spend years in that before they send in the hard troops. Uh, but once they send in the hard troops, uh, they take it over with uh, absolute merciless uh, precision to, to obtain their objectives. Uh, put fear into the people. William the Conqueror, when he came in, uh, of course, people don't realize that William the Conqueror had copied, it's never been explained why, but he copied the same techniques as the ancient Middle East had of the Hamites, where he'd, uh, he'd get prisoners, he'd, he'd put them in front of the city towns, uh, he'd gouge their eyes out so the ones watching down from the battlements could see what he was doing to them, uh, and do terrible things to them, even impale them through the rectum up through the mouth with staves and have them hanging there. Um, and, and this was to terrify people inside to give up and put up no resistance, or else this is what's going to happen to you. And when he looted uh, cities that would not surrender, he also did what the Hamites did. He, he cut the hamstrings <laughs> on their legs so that you couldn't, uh, for the older folks, the ones who were, were not going to sell as slaves, because they were selling the rest as slaves, by the way. And uh, and they'd have to die. Uh, they couldn't crawl anywhere. They couldn't move. So uh, utter cruelty was always a technique to take over and, be, and install your king uh, through through what became up to the present the modern methods. Yeah. Well, it's uh, through conquest, I suppose. Um, in, t- in terms of uh, Columbus and Cortes, I mean, w- would you would you call them kind of? Um, I don't know, ambass- not ambassadors, but uh, they were sent out there to explore, to find find these countries for the the royalty to, to conquer. And, and uh, it's, to, well, um, what they've given us in the basic history is nonsense. Uh, we know that Columbus, or Columni, you know, uh, Cristobal, he, he, he married uh, the top honcho of Spain's daughter, and this guy was a, was a high, very high, early Freemason, we call them, you know, of his day, big Kabbalist too, and extremely rich, uh, the father-in-law. And he, he he had maps of this stuff. They weren't going off to find some alternate route to India. They knew exactly where they were going, and the, the, where they headed for was where they knew from previous excursions that gold was stored, massive amounts of gold. And uh, they went right to their destinations, and the second ship came in too. Uh, and they knew what they were after, and they went in and got it. So, uh, no, they knew where they were going. They didn't land on, say, British Columbia and get eaten alive with mosquitoes or anything, or, or go off to, to Nova Scotia on the East Coast. No, they went straight to where the gold was all stored by uh, the, the various Aztec nations and so on. Yeah. yeah. Well, of course, uh, because uh, other civilizations had been there before. Yeah, well, the Indians even have records of it. And the Catholic Church, they went in too with them, uh, they, they they also had they took a lot of the, the records of the of the Aztecs and the different tribes there back to Rome, 
and or to the Vatican, and uh, they still exist today. And they they said that they had visits from uh, white men in the past. You know, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you mentioned earlier as well that uh, the uh, that the people married their sisters, brothers, whatever, to to keep the the good bloodline going. And I was I, you know, I read something the other day that I'll, I'll probably read it out later when you've gone. But um, you know, Queen Victoria was the great-great-grandmother oh, yeah. of both Philip and, and Elizabeth. So, I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's there in black and white if people want to look at it, the, the Saxe-Coburg-Gotha family tree. Uh, people can see yeah. it, you know. Well, that's, that's why they changed it, uh, their name uh, in World War I, because if you take the posters of World War I for the German recruiting and the British recruiting posters, yeah, you'll see the Kaiser on one, and and you'll see the King of England on the other, and they were they were first cousins, and they, they looked identical, identical, uh, except the different hats on. That's the only difference. And, and but the thing is, the, the the British ones had a German name, and it didn't go over too well with the propaganda they were using back then. So they changed their name to the House of Windsor. Uh, that's when that was formed, the House of Windsor, uh, to make them sound more more English. You see, yeah, yeah. I've got that uh, 1917. They did that, I think. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I wondered. I wondered if they did that because they realised that uh, Germany was going to lose the war, and uh, they thought, oh, "Oh, we better change our name now because if we don't, we'll be out of here." Well, I, I think what it was is that the public had basic education by that time. I mean, very minimalistic, but the general public had, had a basic education for the first time at that time, and they knew a bit of the history and realised that the kings were always sending off troops to fight their their cousins across in France or wherever it happened to be across Europe. And they thought, well, if it's a, another German, a German king sending off his, uh, the British troops to fight Germans, it's the same old thing all over again. So they had to do a, a whammy on their minds and try and make out that he was actually English. I mean, the actual present royalty had no uh, blood relations to the House of Windsor. That's even more comical. Yeah. 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 I've just got a question there about um, financiers. Uh, Fresco Baldi or Baldi? Mm-hmm. You heard of him? Helped finance and support European royal families. Yes. Uh-huh. There, was, there was quite a few, actually. Uh, not all of them, either, were the same people. But the royal family have their own private bankers as well. Uh, and uh, they're private investors, because they're part of what's called the establishment. That's what they all call it, the establishment. And uh, we found one of the scandals happened a few years back when one of the investors had kind of looted the, 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 their, their private bank. Remember that broke into the papers, in fact. But uh, they also are intermarried with, with the Rothschilds as well, by the way. They're all family of, of, of England over the centuries. They, they, they intermarried with some of their, their cousins and so on, too. So and across Europe, it's pretty well much the same. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think, um, uh, is it Prince William's uh, wife, or concubine, or whatever you want to call her, uh, Katie, she's uh, Rothschild-related anyway. But, um, yeah. okay, we'll go to a short piece of music, and then we'll come back. I, I wanted to talk about um, how it is that we've all been conned into believing that these people are somehow better than us mm-hmm. <laughs> after, this piece of, after this piece of music. Welcome to Reality Bites Radio with uh, our guest Alan Watt for monthly chat and um, talking about royalty. And uh, we just had a little chat off air and uh, Alan mentioned Prince Philip coming over from Cyprus and uh, the, the money that um, yeah. came out with that. You want to just uh, tell the listeners about that little scam? 
Yeah, I mean, what happened was at one time they had so many excess uh, cousins and all the rest of it and royalty in, in Europe. They try to drop the kind of the, the term is like politicians. You parachute them in, in other words, to a country to meet them, the king over the country. Well, Greece didn't have one at one time, and so they popped them in there. And uh, for a while, they, they'd ruled it, but they were hated for gouging the public, who were living in poverty. And he was kicked out with it. And it wasn't until the eighties, the nineteen eighties that it leaked out that the British taxpayer was paying for 80 of his relatives that came with him from Greece. They're all of Austro-Hungarian or Germanic background. And none of them were Greek, of course, but that's the way it is. Just like in England, too, they're not really English. But they brought them into Britain, and they were given each a salary of something like a million pounds a year each to keep them living in, in a, a decent lifestyle. So we didn't know that. And that's when they, they, they brought it for the first time. The Queen was going to take a salary from, from the tax, from the purse, uh, to, to, to cope with all her you know, demands and ribbon cuttings and all her Boy Scout things she signs and things like that. So uh, that was to try to calm the public, thinking she was just an employee, which is such a joke, of course, because she's the biggest landowner on the planet. <laughs> yeah, of course. A uh, little question about uh, Prince Philip. I think it might be Prince Charles this guy's talking about, but uh, he admitted he was uh, of Transylvanian blood, not Germanic. But I think that was Charles that said that, was it? Charles said it, but yeah, they're all mixed with... Uh, again, too, a lot, some of us are con, because I say the later... When King George was brought in from Germany uh, during the American before American Revolution, um, he, he, did, he couldn't speak English most of his life, you know. Uh, modern English, this is another little sideline, but uh, modern English, BBC English in Oxford, England, came from the courtiers copying, because always emulate the king. Don't forget, too, in the British Parliament for a long time, they spoke French. That was a dominant uh, language during the Norman period for centuries. And then uh, when, when George came in, uh, he, his type of Eng- the way he pronounced the English became, uh, they would all copy that at the top, and that got put throughout universities, and then they would all emulate it and copy it and mimic it, until you end up with what you call, you call Oxford or BBC English today. But uh, he was Germanic, and... Um, he really wasn't so related to the old, old royalty of Britain as they tried to make out today. Uh, what they would do once they get in is, is intermarry a, a, a present royalty. William did the same thing with House of Orange. Uh, and um, to try to validate it, you, now you'll find, when you go down through history, uh, Winston Churchill's mother was sent over. By It's an interesting story. The mother... Uh, came from a New York family, a very wealthy family, and often these wealthy families would send them over to Europe to marry failing aristocracy who had no idea about business or anything, and, they were, and their incomes were failing. They were landowners and tenant farmers, and that's where their money came from. But they couldn't really run. The, the lifestyle was just so high and exorbitant, extravagant. And so they, uh, they married them off. Well, Winston Churchill's dad married one of them because he, he was a big, heavy gambler. He liked to high life, a bit of an alcoholic. He died of syphilis eventually, but, but um, he married one of the daughters of this New York family, and that was the Spencer line. So uh, you had Winston Churchill, really, uh, technically his mother wasn't uh, British at all. But that, that same mother uh, became uh, the mistress of the king for, for many, many years as well at the same time. She really worked hard to, to make sure this dynasty was going to take off big time. And it certainly did, right down to, the, to Lady Diana Spencer. You know what I mean? So these, these people really are foreigners. Uh, Diana Spencer 
that line, that line of the family had married into the Stuarts to try to validate their kind of royal lineage. Uh, and that's what they, they often do. They come into a country, intermarry it, but try to get into, eventually marry someone who, who was descended from uh, old royalty. That was the idea behind it, yeah. To validate them. You find the same thing in ancient Egypt because when the, the Greeks and Macedonians came in with Alexander, uh, he appointed a couple of his generals to rule different parts. And one of them was Ptolemy, and he was given, he became the head or the pharaoh of Egypt. And how they did it with him was also a, a nice little con. He had a dream one night. His priests advised him, you know, you have a little dream and you'll have the previous pharaoh who's deceased, uh, his spirit talking to you and his spirit coming into you to rule. So that, like, he didn't have the bloodline, but as long as the spirit of the pharaoh was in you, you were, you were a, a bona fide uh, uh, pharaoh. <laughs> so history is quite funny when it comes to kings and queens and all of this stuff, yeah. You'll find, too, uh, that uh, it's been validated as well that that even in the Tudor dynasty, uh, sometimes they got broken, and illegitimate uh, uh, children were put in in their steads when they didn't have the proper uh, lineage to, to fill it. That did happen on a couple of occasions. Hmm. Okay, we okay. I think in, in the the old days, I think it's fair to say that uh, you, you mentioned tyrants earlier on that the king ruled by fear, more or less. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, how? How did we ever get to a situation where um, the, the the peasantry were living in kind of abject fear of their lives, basically, where the, the lords could come up and, uh, you know, take the wife on the first night and uh, basically cut their heads off in, in Japan or, or whatever, if they didn't bow low enough, to yeah. to actually the people getting on their knees and, and you know, adoring mm-hmm. them? I mean, how, how did we well, well, it, it, get it's, to that? It, the, the Normans brought that in with Prima Nocta. That was the, the first night, and, and uh, uh, they brought that custom in with them. But they also, right through the Middle Ages, uh, from the time the Normans right onwards, they ruled across the whole of Europe the same way, uh, up until really, uh, until, the early, until really the early 20th century. But what they did was, uh, if you go through the castles in Britain, and go through the dungeons. You'll find these dungeons, they're tiny little awful things. Honestly, they're terrified to look at them. They would just round up certain people every so often in a village or a town, and they'd lock them up for years, and then let them go when they were emaciated and white and, and almost like albinos. And they'd let them live so they could wander amongst the people, terrifying the people, this might happen to you. Now, what they do as well, as uh, when, when they were losing what they thought was power or people were getting resentful towards them, uh, they'd start executing people publicly, public ex- ex- uh, uh, exhibitions. And it'd be kind of a fair day in a sense. They'd have a fair on the go at the same time. The peasants would come, they'd, they'd hang the people, they'd draw them, that was between the two horses, and they'd quarter them, as they called it. They'd, they'd cut your stomach open when you're still alive, they'd pull your intestines where you're, where you're looking at them to terrify the onlookers if this can happen to you. That's, that was happening right up until the early 20th century, for folk who don't know that. And what they did in the, in the 19th century, around the coastline when you had smugglers coming in, they'd tar the people, literally, and, and, and until you're dead. And they'd hang you and tar you and hang you on gallows along the coastlines. And some of these tarred uh, uh, humans, that's where the, the old story of the tar babies come from, but the, these tarred people... Uh, they'd retar them, and some of them were hanging up there for 60 years, you know. 
uh, to, to, to warn the public this can happen to you if you disobey the king's law. Uh, that's how it happened. It's pure terror. And the problem is, too, you can always hire mercenaries uh, to enforce this. And every generation uh, from the working classes, too, there's always a 10% psychopathic group who will join the winning team. And they themselves get extra privileges and power. They always have brothels around castles, etc. Massive amounts of brothels, beer, and, and, and all the rest of it, to keep them happy. But they're basically the, the lowest scum you'll have. And they're the same across the whole planet, this group. But this is the problem. You know, they always recruit these characters who go and slaughter the people when they're told to do so. Yeah. That's how they, rule. They, they keep their power. Yeah. Yeah. And when they do go into a village or a town to collect taxes and take the pigs or the sheep or whatever, uh, if you didn't have the right quota, they'd slaughter so many of you as a warning to make sure you had the right quota of pigs and cattle the next time. Yeah. Well, I suppose if, if they slaughtered a few of the villagers, then they wouldn't eat as much. So um, they should have enough for the next time. You, you're fine too. If you, there was an interesting little piece in history. Queen Elizabeth I uh, of England. There's no Queen Elizabeth II of Scotland, remember. I don't people know that or not. She's not the present queen is not the, the queen the second of Scotland, uh, because at that time Queen Elizabeth the first uh, was of England. Scotland's an independent country, uh, but uh, the fact is uh, when the Spanish Armada came in, you'll find that uh, the queen had to uh, get men to man the, the ships. You know they're really low on on, on crew, and uh, they they would uh, just grab them out of the alehouses and stuff and stick them on board the ships. Once they'd fought the battles against the Spanish, the Queen's advisor, the money man, her best advisor, who was also in charge of the, the treasury uh, and the taxation system that they had then, he advised the Queen that, that if, if she brought those ships in, they didn't have enough money to pay the crew. So she ordered the commander of the fleet to, to lead them out at sea, to anchor off. And every, every month they would send ships out to, to see how many were still alive. And once enough of them had died off, they brought the ships in. That's a, that's a, a true that's part of history, that, yeah. That's how they see the ordinary folk. We're just peasants to them, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, so how did the, uh, the peasants um, get around, well, just, just forget all about that and uh, decide to, at every opportunity, get out in the street, stand it, in the gutter it, it, and... You know. Eventually, the peasantry is taught. This is the, the great trick of, of psychology. Uh, so if you understand basic psychology and tribalism, uh, etc., it works awfully well, regardless of how you've been treated by those that you'll eventually come to worship. Uh, they will uh, always, people will always gravitate towards a strong, but this is a strong ruler with an external threat, and that ruler is defending you against an external threat. That's why they used these occasional prearranged wars with France and different for, for kings against his cousins to keep, so in both countries, the, the people would, would draw towards their, their kings and their power structure for safety. And during those periods, uh, the propaganda would come out uh, and people would, would say it's our king versus that king. So it's like watching a, some ridiculous uh, football match or whatever, you know, you take a side. And, and that's, a, that's human nature, unfortunately. And the more wars that you have, the more the people will, will start to, to, to uh, basically almost worship what you see as, as a symbol of the protection of you and your country, regardless of the conditions you're living in. It doesn't work quite so well with the lower classes, but with the rising middle classes, it always did. And once they came up to World War I, for instance, it was pretty well perfected by them that had, had a long time off the so-called British Empire, even at the bottom level, where guys will worship football teams and soccer teams and so on, 
it's the same thing. You at the bottom level during long t- empire uh, building days, where oh, Britain's for India and United India now it's theirs, and Britain's for that country it's now it's theirs. You will you will tend to side with that power structure, even though you're living in misery at the bottom level. It's as though you'd won something. It's like watching a game. You get t- you get nothing out of the game. You're still the same peasant as you were before. But that's the psychology of human nature. We worship power, unfortunately. So, so this was, well, I suppose, uh, I don't know, a couple of hundred years. We go back and they, they started turning us around. Uh, we had the troops going off to Africa to fight the Zulus and all that that's kind right. of thing. That's right. It's only in 19, I think it was 19. Lord Kitchener was the great, so-called the great uh, commander they sent over to the British troops for India and Africa and different places, the great Lord Kitchener. They've got statues all across London of, of, for him. But it was until, I think it was 1990s, early 90s, they first disclosed under the Official Secrets Act, they had it sealed for 100 years, how Lord Kitchener managed to quell different peoples across different countries. He would go into the, it was quite simple, he would, he would go into the countries, uh, into the nations, and he'd go around, send his troops around uh, um, the, the, the villages and towns. He'd, he'd select a good portion of the young men who were of fighting age, line them up and have them shot as, as a lesson to the rest. This will happen to you unless you buckle under. So from the days of William the Conqueror to, to, to up till then, nothing had changed, really. So, I mean, well, in, ter- in terms of strong leaders, I, for the life of me, I can't imagine anybody looking at today's royal family and thinking they're strong leaders. Um, I think they're, they're tr- trying to possibly build up um, this uh, William character uh, to be a, a strong leader because his father certainly isn't. Well, the, the thing is, again, propaganda, World War I is when propaganda took over, and they could really use tremendous propaganda with all the slogans that they just shout for you, and our king, our country, etc. Um, and that's been, been perfected a long time ago, that whole technique of propaganda. And with William, I mean, you do, it's like any movie star or even a pop musician. Whatever you read about them, even what you think is a real interview, is, is made up nonsense. It's made up. I mean, I've been with groups where you, you make them up, the story up. A Rolling Stone magazine sometimes will phone you up. Can we do a piece on you? Oh, sure. And then you, um, you, you don't want, you've, no, you've no time to see them. You're on tour or whatever. And so it's, 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 you tell them, just go ahead and make something up. And they do. And, and it's the same with royal families. The propaganda teams do all this. Marketing teams do that. The, the royal family, since I think 1980, has had their own private propaganda company living and working in, in, the, in the palace there. Professionals. Yeah, I remember seeing a couple of interviews with uh, the so-called Prince Harry when he was uh, out, out in Afghanistan, apparently, or Iraq, or wherever he was supposed yep. to be. And uh, the helicopter's in the background, and he's sitting on this chair, and he's got his foot up, and you can see the sole of his boot. Mm-hmm. And the boot had never been walked in. Never mind, never been. Yeah, they, they have them way behind the lines. It's a propaganda piece. Uh, some stuff is snuck out of there too. A photograph with them doing things they perhaps shouldn't have been doing, actually. Uh, and it would cause a little embarrassment if it got out. I know this is for a fact from, from some of the reporters that were there. But um, but he, but I know the same thing happened with, with, with the, the, the war that they had against the Falklands. And they sent to one, the, one of them over there. He went up in a helicopter. Yeah, he went up a bit... Yeah, Andrew, he went up 30 feet and then brought him back down again. That was his PR stunt of him taking part in the war and had him surrounded by ships. In fact, the, the, the two of them got sunk protecting them. They were really shields for the Exocet missiles that were getting sent in against them. 
and and two of the ships, British ships, got sunk. Uh, because they were shields, so his ship wouldn't get hit. Once he'd done his little helicopter thing, they got it back out of there very fast, and that was it. Yeah. There's nothing you can see today that's real on television. Yeah. Oh, not at all. No, I mean, it was so obviously uh, a green screen. I mean, that's, yes. that's how bad yeah. this piece was. And uh, the helicopter in the back, uh, kind of a bit fuzzy looking, and then he jumps out the deck chair and runs off into the distance. And it just, it just reminded me of uh, Wag the Dog, where the, the ladies run out of the... Um, the bomb site kind of thing with a kitten in her arm or a dog or whatever it was, and uh-huh. it, it's just it was it was pathetic, and, and people yes. fall for it. They do fall for it, and again, it's our king uh, doing what we do best, which is going and killing folk and slaughtering people. I mean, <laughs> that's really what it's symbol. It's very primitive, but it works awfully well in psychology. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I think he was actually doing that interview at the time where he was uh, he said he was out there killing the Taliban. Oh, I know. Uh, the, the next minute he's at a party with a Nazi uniform and uh, he's over in Los Angeles with um, women getting yes. them put on videos and stuff and snorting that's, again. That's people right. forget all that. People forget all that. They forget. They do forget it all. All their members, the, when the, the, the official authorised history books come up with the, the authorised photographs and, and it works awfully well. Yeah, Just like World War Two is the same and World War One. yeah. I mean, do, do you see any, any point in history where there was a real threat to any of these people? Or, or, or the whole system, in fact. Uh, no, no, I don't. No. I, I, so presumably, you don't see any any threat to them in the future either. I don't see why. No, uh, a dominant minority uh, that isn't just a royalty; they're a symbol at the top of the system. Uh, a dominant minority never gives up power. It will never will give up power uh, peaceably. Uh, uh, it just simply won't happen. In fact, they use all of your tax money, a lot of your tax money, to to work up systems to make sure that you're so monitored you could no one could possibly ever overthrow anything yeah. i mean we mentioned austerity earlier and the the gold gilded carriages and and all this stuff but i yeah, mean yeah. i mean most pe- most people in britain uh, are just totally ignorant of the fact that every law that comes into the country she has to to sign it to to validate oh, it yes and um we're living in a time of austerity and she signed all the bills um, to bring that about, and yet here she is in her, in her carriage with all these limousines, um, all these um, hangers-on, as you say, getting paid millions a year just to to sit in a parade, basically, and all the yes. horsemen, uh, yeah. all the police, all the barriers. Oh, I mean, I'd love to see the bill for that, just have, just for that one parade. I mean, I'd love to see the bill for it. Well, I think I think I'm going to put in an FOI for that because we talked about that uh, last week. So. Uh-huh. Um, and folk don't know too that Britain was the first country to use CCTV cameras during the Queen's the, the actually inauguration way back, uh, and those cameras became a fixture. The public never knew uh, about that at the time. Uh, they had CCTV cameras all around there, and they put them up for the first time for the, for the first inauguration, and have kept uh, and added to them ever since very quietly, yeah, yeah, to monitor the people. And most of the folk remember in London uh, are not English, and they weren't born in England either. Uh, this is the joke about it as well. That's the ones that are waving all the flags and that. They, you know, they don't even know what they're waving flags for half them. It's just a big show. But uh, they turn up for the show. Yeah, yeah it's funny. It's funny you should say that. And I, I thought it was quite um, interesting because when you when you saw the pictures on the on the BBC or wherever it was, Sky, um, I, I commented to my colleague. I said, "There's not as many people there as you'd imagine." That right. would be, and there's very few English folk. You know, and I said most yeah. of them are tourists. 
you know. Most of them are tourists or, or they're working there temporarily or something like that. But uh, there's a Russian guy came over. He's a, an author and, and a, news, a newsman. And uh, he, his whole thing was to meet the, the Londoner. He, he wanted to desperately meet Londoners. And, and he was so disappointed. He said the only few faces he saw that he thought might be English were actually foreigners as well. So that's, that's what London's comprised of today, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, unfortunately. Well, it's not just London, of course, it's everywhere. But yeah. um, uh, I, I, I don't know how, how we ever uh, turn a system like this around. But, um, you know, yeah, we just mentioned that uh, most of the people that are waving flags are not even English. Um, there's even an apathy amongst British people for the British royal family, and yet, you know, they'll carry on paying their taxes. They'll, you've got Her Majesty's Prison Service, you've got Her Majesty's Revenue Commission. You're, you're detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, it says in the courts. Yeah, and uh, Her Majesty's um, Armed Services. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who people think they're fighting for. I know, uh, and even why even bother with the farce called democracy? Yeah, yeah. well, I, I remember uh, being 17 and going into the RAF recruitment office and, and doing... The, the psychometric testing as it was in those days mm-hmm. uh, and they said um, you, you can go in as um, a warrant officer mm-hmm. oh, so, oh, you know. and apparently that was quite unusual at the time so I don't know, I must have filled in the, the questions right or something and um, I got to the bottom of the page and it, it had the, the oath to the Queen mm-hmm. and something in me, I, I just, I couldn't sign it I said, I, no yeah. Yeah. and I, I left, that was it, that was the end of it but um, I could never understand why you would sign up to defend the country, and yet at the bottom of this piece of paper it says um, you're fighting for the Queen. Well, the reason is when you join the military, you're no, no longer a member of the public. You're, you're a, you start as a private. You're owned privately. That's what it means. That's why you call it private soldier. Yeah. Yeah. You're owned. And corporal. Uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. But you're owned by a, a, a private organisation that's got a charter to exist, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's not going away any time soon, is it? This, uh, it it won't go away. That, that's why all this anti-terrorism is the latest con to monitor everybody uh, to make sure that no one could ever come up with an idea uh, or, a, or, or, or create a system uh, to get any alternative or even true democracy in. It, won't, it simply won't happen. Uh, the, the, the Total Information Network system uh, is monitoring everything you say, everything you do, everything you write, uh, and, and it's constantly analysed, masses of mounds of data. And that goes for everybody. People will say, well, they won't, I, I don't care, I, I, I've got nothing to hide. Well, the fact is, you know, you've lost something that people did fight for in the past, they'd rebel, when, because privacy was something that folk fought for for an awful long time, centuries, trying to get privacy. It was so important. If there's no privacy, you have no security. You're, you're nothing. You're a pawn. You're owned. And this is where it's going back to to the same thing again, where they must know even the person's thoughts. It's the one that says, well, I've got nothing to hide. They must know what, how you tick your personality profile. You must be predictable. In a predictable society, they have no fear of, of anything upsetting the apple cart. That's the idea behind it all. Yeah, well, it's got to the stage here where social workers are taking people's children um, just in case they're emotionally abused in the future. That's so, right, um, yeah, yeah. That's that's where we are now. Um, I suppose uh, we've reached the end of our hour, and uh, we'll have Alan back again. I think it was 17th of July I've got down here. Um, and I'll, I think uh, somebody 
in the chat box was keen on talking about Freemasonry and uh, something to do with students. So I'd have to go way back in the chat box to see that. But um, there's some programme that the Freemasons are running uh, regarding students and universities and uh, infiltrating that. So we might talk about yes, that. Yes, uh, there's time. long history in that, in fact, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, OK. Well, there you, there you are. Uh, whoever you were in the chat box, that's that's next one's topic then sorted out. OK, yeah. Alan, um, thanks again for your time. That's been a pleasure. It's a lot, there's too much to cram into an hour in any detail. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At least you can skim over it, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Um, we'll talk again in July. Okay, good stuff. Okay, thanks a lot.